0: So please give ear as we read together the uh, inerrant and infallible word of God. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Praise be to God.
0: One more passage,
1: Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths, and she laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. This is the word of the Lord. When you read these words, uh, first thing you think, maybe you think Christmas um, maybe you think the historical you know the outline if you go to Matthew you get Christmas narrative if you go to Mark there's no Christmas narrative if you go to Luke there's Christmas narrative if you go to John you got one verse in him you know they, the word became flesh and he dwelt among us that's the Christmas verse in John, in John. But here you get the narrative, and we can just really quickly, if you're like a person who you know, studies their Bible and they want to outline it, you get the time Jesus was born, you get the place Jesus was born, you get the manner in which Jesus was born, and you're off to the next passage because you just outlined it. But what I want us to do instead of just think about what happened, I want you to think about it from God's sovereign point of view. I want us to think about it from the perspective of God being up 35,000 feet, looking down and seeing this from God's perspective. So I want you to see it as this: these points. I want you to see the sovereignty of God in the time of Jesus' birth. I want you to see the sovereignty of God in the place of Jesus' birth, the sovereignty of God in the manner of Jesus' birth, and then we want to apply it at the end, the sovereignty of God and your or our salvation. So let's begin. The sovereignty of God in the time of Jesus' birth. It was the time when Caesar Augustus was ruling over the known world. Caesar Augustus, to help you out, I know that many of you know who Julius Caesar is, you know, et tu, Brute. Julius Caesar, he was a great nephew of Julius Caesar, Caesar Augustus. He was a genius, he was formidable in his day, and he brought stability and strength to all of Rome. For hundreds of years, he is credited for this stability and strength of Rome. He was called Augustus by the Roman Senate because he was so revered. The word Augustus means revered or holy one. He was given a term reserved for the gods. So we, it's in a time, when Jesus is born, it's in the time of Caesar. Augustus. it was a great time of peace because this man performed well. He received this term God because he had done a great thing and brought the strength and stability to Rome. Some people called him the Savior of the known world. He was a God, if you will, but here's the problem with this God. He bludgeoned you into peace. It wasn't a loving peace. It was a peace that was Uh, in bludgeoning his enemies to bring it about. So if you disagreed with him, you might look over your shoulder. And if you disagreed with him, you may not have a head to be able to look over your shoulder with. So it was a Hitler sort of peace. And this peace extended all the way to Judea where Mary and Joseph lived. The Jews were clients or vassals to this Roman Caesar and they had to pay taxes. And so it's a time of Caesar, it's a time of peace, and it's also, as Mr. Larson just read, it's a time of great darkness. Now, if you remember King Solomon, King Solomon represents in first Kings chapter ten the glory of Israel's kingdom. Everybody in the world is flooding in to see Solomon listen to his wisdom. In chapter 10, Solomon begins to sin and we don't want to go into all of that. And then the kingdom begins to go go to pieces. Rehoboam becomes a king. Solomon dies. Rehoboam becomes a king. He takes very uh, bad counsel from his group of counselors and not Solomon's wiser men. The kingdom divides into two parts. Rehoboam takes Judah in the south and Jeroboam takes the northern ten kingdoms in the north, those northern ten kingdoms uh, adopt idolatrous practices. And in 722, the Assyrians overwhelm them, and the northern kingdom is no more. Well, a few years down the road, the Ju- Judah follows the same track. But at the same time, there are some kings in Judah that do love God. So there's this little bit of light in Judah that was not in the north But finally in 605 and then 597 and then 586, Nebuchadnezzar finally gets tired of of Judah and he just crushes Jerusalem. The walls go down, the temple is down, and they're taken into captivity for 70 years. And then there's this man named Cyrus the Persian who comes along and conquers the Babylonians. And he has a different philosophy than than Nebuchadnezzar. He sends all the people home. And here's the reason why some, some people want to call Cyprus, Cyrus a Christian. I'm going, no, y'all got that wrong. <laughs> Cyrus is not a Christian. He, God used him to send his people home, but he sent all the people home. He had a mentality that said, go home to your homes, rebuild your homes, rebuild your temples, and make sure you pray to God for me. All the gods. He wants all the gods on his side. He's got a different mentality than Nebuchadnezzar. This is a dark time, folks. When when that we talked about this in the men's group yesterday, when they begin to rebuild the temple, it was like a um, one man has said it was like a tennis court up against Jerry Jones' football stadium over here in Arlington, a little beady place. It was a dark time, and so now Israel is paying tribute not to Cyrus the Persian but to Rome. God has prophesied that there's going to be a, pro, a, a Messiah. And we see nothing. We come to the end of the Bible, the Old Testament. We come to Malachi and there's nothing. It's dark for 400 years. It appears that God has forgotten his people. Isaiah tells us, we read, that it's a time of great spiritual darkness. Zechariah, John the Baptist's father said that it's dark and we live in a time of the shadow of death. And then in the midst of this darkness, this Roman Caesar, this most powerful man in all the world, he makes a decree. At this time, he says something. He determines this decree, and guess what it does? It moves things into place for God's Word to, take, to, to occur, just as he had prophesied in the past. Here is a man who's the Savior of the world. Here is a man who's ruling by his sword, who's making a, a decree. And that brings us to our second point, the sovereignty of God and the place of Jesus' birth. This decree moves Mary and Joseph from Nazareth to Bethlehem. The decree, what is he decreeing? Well, he is the ruler of the known world, and so he wants all his people to be counted. He wants all his people to be registered. And then all those people who counted registered can be taxed, and then those men can be conscripted. conscripted, Let me get my word right. Conscripted to military service. The Jews... Were exempt from military service, but they weren't exempt. They weren't exempt from the counting and the registration, and the being taxed part. And this is where we see the sovereignty of God in the birth of Jesus. Observed, it appears that the most powerful man in all the world is doing what powerful men do: make decisions and do the business of the state. But something great is happening here. Nothing is not there. Everything, folks. I, I can't say this enough. Everything we do is important. Everything we do is important. There's nothing that's not important. Something's happening here. Even as a Roman ruler is directing the affairs of the world, God is going to use this man He has created to bring about Mary and Joseph moving from Nazareth into Bethlehem just as the Word of God had prophesied 750 years earlier. Not one word of God will fall to the ground. Even as men go about doing their business, God is in the business of bringing about redemption for his people. And this is one of the steps in order to bring that about. It is important because God has prophesied that not one of his words, as we read in 1 Samuel, not one of God's words will ever fall to the ground. In, in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, the Messiah is told to be born in Bethlehem, and that is exactly what this decree brings about. So when this Caesar's going about counting people and registering people and making sure he gets the tax money from people and making sure he has people to go out and fight for his fight his battles for him, we have an infinite, eternal, and unchangeable God who decrees the redemption of his people take place. It's the fullness of time. It's just the right time. It's the right time. It's in the right place. Isaiah 9 tells us the people who are walking in darkness and in the shadow of death have seen a great light. Je- Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, he says of Jesus, he's the son. He's the son who's come from heaven. John chapter 1, verse 5, John says the light shines in the darkness. God is at work. Even if no one thinks he's at work. He is at work. Well, now, preacher, you might say, uh, why, didn't, why didn't God send the Messiah when Rehoboam was making bad decisions and split the kingdom in two? Why didn't He do it then? <laughs> why didn't the Lord send the Messiah when Nebuchadnezzar was demolishing the walls of Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem? Surely those are better times than now. But you know something? The Bible tells us God's always on time. (laughs) He always comes at the right time. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells us this was the fullness of time. He always comes at the right time. He always comes in the right place. I love what it says there in Psalm 46. He comes at break of day. You know, 559, 59. 6.00.00 5, 6.00.00 at the break at the, just in the nick of time and it reminded me as I was preparing I read a story um, about a Christian man named Watchman Nee early he died in the 70's but he was a Chinese Christian and he wrote about a man uh, they were by the river and there was a young man who was drowning and um, there was this really really well known swimmer standing there on the side and he was just standing there like this, and he wasn't moving. And this man's screaming for help, <laughs> and he doesn't do anything. And all the people know he's a good swimmer. Why aren't you going out to help the guy? Why aren't you going out to help the guy? I, he acted like they were dead. He just kept watching, He kept watching. The guy's up, the guy's down, the guy's up, the guy's down. Finally, the guy goes down, he doesn't come back up. And he jumps in the water, pulls him out, and he saves the guy's life. And he says to him, people around said to him, why would you wait? He said, well, if I had jumped in while he was struggling, he would have grabbed hold of me and we would have both drowned. I had to wait. I had to wait till he gave up. And when he had given up, I could jump out, pull him in, and save him just the right time. How does this apply to you? How does this apply to me and, in my time and in my place today? Well, it means this. Nothing is unimportant in your time and in your place. God knows. Uh, it, At Matt's father's funeral the other day, we talked about the the encouragement we get from a God. Jesus says, our father knows. Sometimes people look at that that part in there where it talks about sparrows falling to the ground. Well, he knows every time a sparrow falls to the ground and dies. But he also knows every time a sparrow hops. And how many sparrows are there in the world? I don't know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Billions. (laughs) Billions and billions. He knows every hop. He knows every hair that you woke up with, except Chris didn't wake up with any, and I think he could be challenged too. So we, 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 he knows all these hairs in the morning. He knows all these hairs at the end of the day. He knows where they all are and where they fall out and where they lay right now. You know, we have a dog in our house, Australian Shepherd. This dog, this dog, she comes up the other day. It, she's a 44 pounds of love, and she comes up. She, I'm laying on the bed. She puts her head right here, and she's like got her eyes looking right at me. And I love it. But if you want to deal with an Australian shepherd, you know what you have to deal with? A lot of hair. Oh, man. I don't go vacuuming first. I sweep the carpet first. Hair. God knows all these little things. What? what is, I, I said, I said in, the, in the funeral sermon, is God just bragging? No, Jesus is telling us something about God. He's so powerful, but he's also really personal. And if he knows all those things about birds that are just very I'm not so very valuable, how much more does he care about you and your time and in your place? Well, you say, now, preacher. Preacher, look. My life is filled with darkness and gloom and difficulty. God doesn't care about me in my time, in my place, but He does. And it's when times are really dark, that's when we need to hold on the most. That's when we need to hold on the tightest. When it's really dark, you see, God was in somebody's tummy, kiddos. He was behind closed doors, if you will. He couldn't be seen. (laughs) He's in a manger, you see. Nobody taking notice of this. Sometimes we feel that God is not for us, but he's against us. And one of the things I've about our Westminster Confession, some of it's just, just straight-out pastoral stuff. And it comes in Chapter 18, Article 4. I'm going to outline Chapter 18, Article 4 like this. What happens when I feel like God is not with me and God is not for me? Uh, here's some of the things that our confession says. He says, maybe you feel this way because you have been negligent in the means of grace. What's that mean? Well, if you go out and you don't read your Bible, the preacher comes up here and you come up here to join the church and the preacher says, be diligent in the means of grace. Don't mean negligent. He says, you, I charge you to read your Bible, to be in worship, to be a participant in the sacraments. And I want you to pray and be in fellowship with God's people. You must do that. Be diligent. Are you doing that? Have you left something out? <laughs> maybe you don't feel that God is for you right now because you've left something undone. You've been negligent in the means of grace. Then the, then the confession says this. M- maybe you feel this way because you've fallen into some special sin. Maybe there's a sin that you know that you've committed. You don't tell You haven't told anybody. Special sin. Nobody knows. Just you and God. What do you need to do with that? We need to repent of it. I'm not telling you to do this. I'm not saying you have to do this, but you could even talk to somebody about it and get some help. Third, maybe you feel that God is not for you, but against you because you've suddenly been tempted or tempted repeatedly with some temptation that you just can't believe a Christian would ever be tempted with. (gasps) uh, Christians could never be tempted like that. Brother, let me tell you something. There's some things... There's some things that we can be tempted to do that we never, ever do, but it might make you cry that you were tempted to do it. But just because you're tempted doesn't make you mean that you're not a Christian. Well, third, fourth, fourth the confession says this in Article 4, Maybe God has withdrawn the light of His countenance and is allowing you to, love, to, to uh, walk with Him in darkness and have no light. Let me say that again. Maybe God has withdrawn the light of his countenance. I remember when I first heard this, I was 27 years old. Maybe God has withdrawn the light of his countenance from you and he's allowing you to walk in darkness and have no light. What does that mean? Well, let me give you a picture. In Pilgrim's Progress, Pilgrim is in the dark. He's got his sword drawn. He's got his word out. He's walking in the dark. He's walking on the narrow path. He doesn't see anybody to the right. He doesn't see anybody to the left. He doesn't know anybody's behind him. He, see, he doesn't see God's countenance at all. It's completely black. He's walking like this, and he's protecting every step. He's walking according to God's word. And then the light comes out, and he sees God's face, and it's smiling. And he looks around, and he sees Christians all around him, but he couldn't see in the dark. You with me? This is what Isaiah 50, 10 says. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light. Let that man trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. There's a, there's a verse for you to hold on to. When you feel like God may be not before you, but he's against you. How many times have you, how many times have I said, Lord, you need to help me now, and he doesn't. But he helps you at just the right time. He helps you at just the right time. He helps you at just the right place because he's always working, just not working out in the open sometimes. Well, this brings us to point number three, the sovereignty of God and the manner of Jesus' birth. When Jesus, it comes time for Jesus to be born, there was no room for them in the end. And one of the books that I read helped me kind of understand this. When you 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 enter into one of these inns, you walk into this enclosure and there's stalls for people to spend the night in, and the animals ha- were in a common area. But the folks could stay in these stalls. Well there's no in there's no place for them in the end. There's no stall. And so when it's time for Jesus to be born, Mary and Joseph are out in the common area where all the animals are and where all the the stuff is. And the trough, that's the easier part to think about, the trough or the manger. It's not sanitary. Oh man, man, that would be a place to build your immune system, right? (laughs) It's not freshly swept. No vacuumed hotel room It's dirty. Doesn't this startle you? The government shall be on his shoulders, and he's born in a common animal area. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, lying in a manger, a feed trough. The angel tells Mary, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And here he is, so little and so insignificant and small. It doesn't appear that this person would ever rule and reign over anything. And yet this is how God is working in the manner of Jesus' birth. He's not showing us somebody who comes from heaven as a bolt of lightning coming down to sit on a big throne. He sees God is working in this little person. He's going to come as a pauper. He's going to grow up and be a servant so that he comes to give himself up as a ransom for many. He comes in the womb. He's not a man who gains, who becomes a God and called a God by other men because he has great victories. <laughs> but he comes and he comes as a person who is God. And he puts on our humanity so that our salvation can be accomplished. Here is the word, not speaking a word. Here is the one who never sleeps and never slumbers, who created all that you see. He's asleep in a manger. He's not in a palace. He's among the animals. This is the person who wrapped the earth in clouds and darkness. And now his mom is wrapping him up and laying him down in a manger. Coming in this manner to serve and give his life a ransom for many. God, for God to save a sinner. His son must become a man. He must live and suffer in our nature. And that is just exactly what God is doing. Well, that brings us to this final point, the sovereignty of God in your salvation. We see the sovereignty of God in the time of Jesus' birth, the place of Jesus' birth. We see the manner in which Jesus was born. In all of this, it is God who is doing the acting. You know, I love the proverb. We use that in that. I usually pray. I usually use that proverb every time I pray on Sunday morning. Lord, move these politicians. Move these kings. Move these judges. Move these people in the ways of righteousness. And we see God using old Caesar, Augustus, this God, the Savior of the known world. God is using him to accomplish his saving purposes. God's quest. This is God's pilgrimage. God is going to have a pilgrimage in the person of his son. Jesus is on pilgrimage to save people from every language and tribe and tongue. At no place in this narrative do we see men doing something to save themselves. In all religions except Christianity, mark that down, there's only really two religions. There's those who say, do this, we've said this several times, do this and you will live. Or somebody does something for you. And that's Jesus. He has to come and do something for us I never forget, I can never, there's certain conversations, you know, you guys know this too, you have these certain conversations, and um, I'm sitting in the gym, I'm training one of my ladies, and my lady said, you know, my preacher, my preacher, what, my preacher told me that if you just do your best, God will accept you, that's what your preacher said, well that's not what I would say, because that's not what the Bible says, do all the good that you can, and then God will accept you. In all religions except Christianity, there's something you must do. There's a pilgrimage you must make. There's something you must undertake. There's something you must do or not do. There's something you must touch or not touch. There's something you need to drink or not drink to be accepted before God. You know, Martin Luther, as I thought about this pilgrimage stuff, Martin Luther, he, he was about to get his doctorate. He's about to get his THD in the 1500s. And, oh, he is racked with uh, absolute, just, he's just racked with trouble over his sins. And so his advisor, Johann von Stoppitz, believes that if he just sends him on pilgrimage to Rome, it'll calm him down and he will find that God is accepting him and his sins. He will find you know, acceptance from God and forgiveness. And so he sends him and he thinks this is going to help him. And so with great enthusiasm, Martin ran. It says, Martin ran through Rome. He ran, he's going to all the places, all the shrines of all the holy apostles. And he's confessing all of his sins in hopes that he would find acceptance with God. And so he runs through all of these things. And one of the ones he does, he comes to the Scala Sancta. I'm sure y'all have heard that before. These are the holy stairs that are believed to be the stairs that Jesus walked up in order to stand in front of Pilate. On every stair, Luther is praying a prayer. It's, he's praying a, On every stair, he's praying the same prayer. And any time there's any... You guys, y'all stick with me. It's On any stair, any part where they, there's any stain on the ground, he kisses it. Because that stain is believed to be the blood of Jesus. 1,500 and some years later, that's still believed to be the stains of Jesus' blood. So he's kissing stains. He's praying prayers all the way to the top. And Luther says, I came to Rome with garlic and I left with onions. I mean, you know, kind of, yeah, y'all had garlic lately. You know, get it on your breath. Then you have onions on your breath. That's how he felt. He was totally disenchanted with all of this. He still didn't know what it meant to be forgiven. But you know what was going on in his mind too? There's this echo in the back of his heart where he's already been reading Romans chapter 1 and 3 and 4 and 5. He already is hearing these verses. The just shall live by faith. God must declare you good and this declaration is received by faith. And what God is doing in our passage is God is getting everything ready to declare you good again. You and I, we are not good. You know, we pray that prayer, that that prayer, we, we pray sometimes, we do that confession of sin and we say we're miserable offenders. You know, there's some churches, take that out. Some people won't confess that. They won't say with the Apostle Paul, nothing good in me. Luther knows there's nothing good in him. But see, here God is at work and he's sending his son to accomplish this great pilgrimage for us. This is the great quest from heaven. Jesus does come. He does dwell in human form. He does go and he does do perfect good in thought, word and deed so that all of our sin, so that all of our iniquity, so that all of our twistedness can be laid on Him. Second Corinthians 5.21, God made Him who was perfectly good and knew no sin to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. God has made a way to declare us good again. And that way is in the person, that pilgrimage that Jesus made from heaven to earth and therefore, you and I, we must un- renounce all attempts to be good. You must give up all your pilgrimages, all the rituals, all the things you write down on pieces of paper in order to say, okay, these a- are the good things I'm doing so I can present them to God. you got to give all that up. And you say, Man, you know what, this is a painful thing for our sinful nature. Our sinful nature doesn't want to say that that's okay. Our sinful nature wants to say, you can't tell me that because I can be good enough. (laughs) I live in America, Brother Mark. Life, you know, the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness. And don't tell me what I can't do. (laughs) But I can't be good. I can do a lot of stuff. Guys, look, I'm not saying you can't be a great worker. I'm not saying you can't earn millions of dollars. But you can't do the good that God requires of you. Look at your good. If you stopped, I think one of the things, I'm going to steal from tonight's sermon. Do you know what people don't uh, want to happen in the gym? You know what people don't want to happen? Men don't want to happen in the gym when they're working out. You know what they don't want to happen? They don't want the music to stop playing. You know why? Then they have to think their own thoughts. Get the music back on. I don't want to think, I don't want to stop and have to face that my good's not so good. Get the music back on. We have to give it up. We stand condemned before the judge of all the earth because our good's not good enough. Our good is filthy rags. We have to renounce all our efforts to please God. We have to trust in the only good that God provides, and that's in Jesus Christ who was born on Christmas, at Christmas time. we call it. He grew up to be a man who lived perfectly for us so that we could be declared good again as we put our faith in Him. Well, let's praise God for that. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this message. We thank You for how You teach us that, Lord, we we sometimes look at things historically. We see how things all fall out. And yet, Lord, we also know from Your Word that You are at work in all of these things. You're at work in this moment as we stand before you, you're at work in our worship. You're at work in our hearts. Your word is, is going in and out of us right now, and it's, it's working in our hearts and our minds. And I pray, Father, that we might constantly find ourselves putting our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and knowing that the work has been done for us so that we can go out and do good deeds not to be saved, but because we are saved. We are saved by the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray, Father, that you will help us to improve these thoughts to our hearts and our minds today. And we thank you again in Jesus' name. Amen.